Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. One big question heading into 2020, or in 2020, since we are now there, uh, has been how much has the Fed bolstered stock prices and how much will they continue to do so? We're so lucky to have Torsten Slock with us, Chief Economist and Managing Director at Deutsche Bank Securities uh, here in our interactive broker studios. Uh, Torsten puts out some of the most interesting and provocative charts uh, that I get in my inbox. I'm very excited to have you on. Let's just first talk about how much you found that the Fed stimulus last year actually bolstered stock valuations? Yeah, so what we tried to do was to ask the question, uh, when the Fed basically expands their balance sheet, there are various reasons why the balance sheet can go up, and we can discuss for a long time whether that's called QE or not. But the bottom line is when the Fed expands its balance sheet, then you can measure that on a weekly basis when the balance sheet data comes out. And then you could try to ask the question, let's try to go back since October when they started expanding the balance sheet and say, for every 1% that the balance sheet expanded, how much did the stock market go up or down? And what we found in our very simple scatter diagram is that for every 1% increase in the Fed balance sheet, the S&P 500 has actually gone up by roughly 1% also. So in that sense, Fed balance sheet expansion has at least been correlated with the increase in the stock market that we have seen since October. Now you can ask, looking ahead, of course, if this will continue, if the Fed balance sheet expansion is continuing. But at least for now, that has been a very tight relationship for the last several months. Has the Fed's activity as it relates to the balance sheet and growing its balance sheet, how unusual is that, you know, kind of activity? Is it something that we should consider for 2020? So a very important part of that question is that traditionally when the Fed has done QE or quantitative easing, they have been buying the long end of the yield curve with the whole intention of trying to lower long-term interest rates. What's really unusual about what they're doing today is that they are buying T-bills, meaning the short end of the yield curve. And therefore, we're getting a lot of questions from clients about, well, why should that be helping the stock market? It makes sense that when you shift long bonds that you could begin to buy long-duration assets. But if you buy a T-bill, why would that be substituted with the S&P? There's probably not many who on their own just substitute directly a four-week T-bill with a long-term asset like S&P 500. But remember, money is fungible. So in that sense, if there is a portfolio-induced rebalancing, you could easily see that someone at the end of a long process would end up allocating more money to risky assets, therefore the S&P 500. So the long answer to your question, Paul, is that I still think that uh, as we look into this year, the more the Fed balance sheet is going to expand, it will be still something that provides support to the stock market. So that's a fantastic uh, perspective as to what potentially could drive uh, stock gains further in 2020. One thing that I love about your research is you take a more holistic approach, not just uh, stock valuations, but diving deeper into the economy. And one thing that you've highlighted increasingly is that there is a whole swath of Americans that have been left behind in the rally, uh, whether, it come to, whether, whether it comes to income gains, whether it comes to spending more than they're bringing in every month, whether it comes to health care costs. Can you give us a sense of just your overarching theme when it comes to the widening gap and what that could potentially do uh, economically and, frankly, asset, asset price-wise. Absolutely. We, we think a very important issue uh, going into uh, here 2020, and of course, uh, in particular with the election in November, continues to be inequality in all dimensions. The way we look at it is that there are four different dimensions to inequality. There's income inequality, there's wealth inequality, but there are also two other very important dimensions that are often ignored, namely health inequality. Different people have different access to healthcare. And finally, education inequality, that education has become very expensive, which also means that different people ha have different access. And if you look at these different dimensions, 
conversations. It is basically things that are dominating the political conversations. So we're trying to think about and trying to figure out as hard as it is, should we just ignore all this and say, hey, I just look at the stock market, this is what I do? Or should we say, well, these are actually now indicators and data points that have become so important in the conversation politically that maybe we need to take into account, how should I think about that as an investor? Should I take it into account and say this could imply something in terms of policy changes on education, healthcare, student loans, taxes. There's a lot of dimensions that become very important for the overall business environment and therefore also for the outlook for the stock market and ultimately also for the Fed and rates. So in short, this agenda is very confusing and, and fluffy in the sense of there's a lot of arm waving around a lot of these data points, but it still turns out in almost all our conversations to be at the end of the day, a very, very critical input to how will markets actually do as we sit here on the first days of 2020. Do you think some of those inequalities that you identified have had an economic impact in the US? Has it impacted GDP? There's a lot of folks, a lot of economists are saying we're going to be slower growth for longer, you know, kind of 2% GDP. Do you think one of the contributors of that could be some of these inequalities we're seeing? Absolutely. We do think that a very important reason why this expansion was so weak for the last 10 years was probably that the main boost from policymakers, remember policy in 2009 and 10 basically responded less with fiscal policy and more with monetary policy. And what did monetary policy do? It lifted stock prices and home prices. Who benefits from that? People who own stocks, people who own homes. And because there were fewer people who own homes, the home ownership rate was going down, fewer people owning stocks, that meant that the benefits in this expansion were concentrated on fewer hands. So in that sense, the benefits of higher stock prices and higher home prices were basically more concentrated in a smaller group of the population that meant that the impact on consumer spending, the wealth effect, the impact overall on the economy turned out to be driven a lot by asset prices going up in some sectors and some people benefiting, but a significant part of the population not benefiting. So we do believe that one critical reason why this expansion has been so weak is because of inequality that has continued to widen. Torsten Slock, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Torsten's the Chief Economist at Deutsche Bank Securities. Hockey stick growth, that is what people are expecting for the first quarter, the first half of 2020. Joining us here in our interactive broker studios, Nick Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Research. And I want to talk about the consensus idea that we have here, which is that the first half of the year will be front-loaded uh, in terms of gains in the S&P and beyond as companies report earnings that are solid and show steady growth in the U.S. economy. Do you agree with that consensus call? I think it's a bit tough, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the first half of last year, you saw that S&P 500 companies registered revenue growth of 5% in Q1 and 4% in Q2, and that trailed off to 3 and then 2%, what we're expecting for the fourth quarter. And those are tough comps because the U.S. economy and global economy is still growing only fairly slowly, and even though the effect of Fed rate cuts and perhaps a trade, uh, um, trade war settlement will spur business spending, it'll be in the back half of the year, so I'm not as optimistic that we'll see those really healthy comps in Q1 and Q2. So, Nick, I'm looking at your research note, and I love your your uh, theme here, six-word market narratives. Give us your six-word market narratives for 2018, 2019, and maybe how we should think about 2020. 
You know, the, the six-word narrative is an exercise to try to just distill down what happened in 2018-19 and what could happen this year. The summary of it was that 2018 was a, a year of a huge policy mistake. The Fed thought that neutral rates were much higher than they were. You know, if Jay, don't touch that dial. <laughs> it's kind of the six-word market narrative. In 2019, we had a reversal of that. Basically, the Fed came out on January 4th, apologized for getting it wrong, and spent the rest of the year cutting. So it was, okay, we know you're sorry it's okay right. 2020 is going to be this issue of look there's a hundred different ways to cut this market and say you shouldn't be involved valuations are very high corporate debt's very high we talked about the earnings comps all very real issues but at the same time we still have the flow through of these policymakers, both at the fed now saying they're not going to raise rates and in the white house saying you know what the trade war probably should be over because president trump wants to get reelected, and it's a flow through of those two narratives that says this year might be okay all right, let's talk about where it's going to be most okay. I was looking at the City uh, Economic Surprise Index for both the U.S. and Europe. This morning in the U.S. it's going down and it is negative. In Europe it's the highest level uh, since February 2018, basically meaning that uh, the economic data coming out was beating expectations by the most since then. Do you agree that this sort of supports the narrative that Europe will outperform the U.S.? At an economic basis, on a relative basis, meaning they're going to grow a little faster on a quarter over quarter sequential basis, absolutely. The issue with Europe as a stock market is it's so little exposed to technology. The EFA index is only 7% technology, and that includes Japan, obviously, but developed non-US. US here, we're 31% tech, between tech, Amazon, Google, and Facebook. So you really have to make a very big bet on financials, which is fine. European financials have done really well in the fourth quarter, and should continue to do well as boom rates continue to rise. So it's a good story, it's just not the same kind of story as the US market. I still like the US market better, but it's for that tech exposure. So typically, after a very strong year like we had in 2019, up 28, 29% in the S&P, what does your research show to what the markets tend to do in the year after? Well, here's the good news. Okay, let's the, start with the good The good news Which is- Which means he has more bad news. <coughs> yes. Let's carry on. The good news is you don't see markets puke the next year. The market is pretty efficient, and it tends to see through. The only time we had a really bad sequential year after a bad after a great year was 37, uh, yeah, 1937. Market was down 38%. 37.38. Um, but on average, you do about 10% is the short answer to your question. You don't do as well as average because there is a little bit of pull forward, but you tend to have another good year. The problem is the win rate's not as good. On average, S&P win rate 72% since 1928. Uh, against these years, it's more like 60%, so a little bit closer to a coin toss. We had Torsten Slock on earlier from Deutsche Bank, and he was talking about something that you mentioned, the Fed support of markets, and talking about uh, the uh, correlation between the increase in the Fed's balance sheet and uh, increases in the S&P 500. Granted, it's not a long time, uh, time set. Do you, though, believe that the expansion of the balance sheet, call it whatever you will, perhaps don't use quantitative easing because it, it is controversial, do you think that that is supporting a rally much more than some people are, uh, are, are allowing? I think it is absolutely helpful. It does show that the Fed put, and we all hate that phrase, but it's real. Uh, the Fed put applies to a whole range of things, including things like the repo market. And they want to make sure that the system continues to work as it should. So I think it's a comforting notion. I don't know how much it directly affects stock prices, but let's put it this way. It helps more than it hurts. So again, are you in the camp that, like I, this is where uh, Lisa and I had a little bit bone of contention before the holidays. I said, 
if the data was to come in, you, you know, strong economic data that is there a scenario where the Fed could hike raise and she quote unquote rejected that assertion. I reject that. She rejected that assertion. Is there any scenario where in an election year the Fed would even consider if the data led them there to no. maybe raise rates? Absolutely not. <laughs> It doesn't feel like it, but I'll tell you why. We do a, every time we see a new set of dot plots from the Fed, we do a standard deviation of all the FOMC participants and look at how certain they are about their future expectations. The Fed is more certain now, right now, about 2020, than it has ever been since the dot plot started for a future year. They are signaling very strongly that they are not going to raise rates. It's really unusual. Standard deviation is like a third of what it usually is for an end of year forward year look. See? That sounds like a rejection. That, he, was, yeah, well, he, yes, he didn't reject he politely, me. He, he, he politely, politely rejected, rejected your okay. assertion. I, I very impolitely rejected your we assertion. Just, we just follow the numbers. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. I just reject things outright. I do think uh, when you say, Jay, don't touch that dial, the idea that they will be on hold at best, uh, in, or you know, at, at worst, if things do deteriorate, they will cut rates and support uh, the economic and asset price expansion. One thing I notice is that you came in with a prop today. Yes, the prop has to do with the fact that 100 years ago today was the liftoff point for radio as a medium. The first big broadcast uh, news was Warren Harding winning the 1920 election, and it was really what spurred radio into popular uh, use. You know, the, at the ni- beginning of the 1920s, 1% of the population had a radio. By 1930, it was closer to 40%. He has this, uh, wi- the wireless age, <clears throat> the wireless an issue age. from April 1922. Uh, it's got, wow, it was and this 25 was eBay, cents. Amazon, you kind of. E- eBay, eBay. Five, five, five bucks on eBay. Wireless age was the hobbyist magazine of uh, the radio age in the 1920s. Uh, and it's, it looks exactly like a, a computer nerd magazine from the 1980s and 90s. Right. It was really, you know, the industry was built by enthusiasts and only slowly commercialized. You know, it's funny, we were just talking to Justin Fox of Bloomberg Opinion, yeah. talking about the evolution of media and primarily from a news perspective about the, obviously the decline in the local newspaper and local media and, and how that may be contributing to the polarization of the U.S. and, you know, the left and the right and how cable television and, you know, talk shows and so on and so forth may have uh, contributed to that. So it kind of brings into context the 100 years of radio. And, 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 and it all started with radio. And yeah. It all started with radio. And yes, and here we are. And here we are continuing to uh, <laughs> to beat that drum. Exactly. Thank you so much for yeah. being with us. Thank Nicholas. you. Nick Nicholas, co-founder of Trek uh, Research, uh, joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us lots of perspective on the markets uh, coming from the 2018 disappointment, 2019 extraordinary performance the question is 2020 what does what do the markets hold in store for us With the launch of Disney Plus in November of last year, many expect 2020 to be the year that the streaming wars really heat up. To get a sense of kind of where we are here in the early days, we welcome Ronan Crossan. He's head of data analytics at Eagle Alpha. He joins us on the phone from Dublin, Ireland. Ronan, thanks so much for joining us. It seems like, you know, as we entered 2019, it was all pretty much a, a Netflix story, but it's getting pretty competitive out there, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah, no, it it is getting more competitive. Um, But what we're actually seeing is that with the launch of Disney Plus, what we've actually seen is Disney Plus have grown the market. Um, Like we, uh, around the time of the Netflix 
their disappointing Q2 earnings last year. We started tracking Netflix using uh, social media data, particularly from Twitter. And what we noticed was that Netflix was continuing to gain momentum and was continuing to get stronger and stronger. Then around the time of the Disney Plus launch in November, we saw that actually that grew the market and Netflix continued to grow as Disney Plus did. Um, so we're seeing actually it's, it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. The, the market continues to grow overall. All right. This is a really interesting take because I think Netflix is one of the most compelling companies to watch in 2020 because of Disney Plus, because of this uh, consensus that there can only be so many streaming services. What do you think will drive their profitability? The fact that they might not just burn through cash. Is it going to be uh, charging subscribers more? Is it going to be expanding their subscriber base or is it going to be monetizing things like advertising or data streams? Well, I think it always comes back to the content, right? And Netflix has consistently invested in their content. And we actually saw that as we track um, the conversation online, it's the top shows that are, are continuing to gain momentum. And actually what we saw in 2018 was that so there was somewhat of a dearth of new shows coming on that we weren't seeing the same appetite and enthusiasm on, 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 online for those, those shows at Netflix. But actually 2019, it feels like they got it right, uh, particularly towards the second half of the year. Um, so we think they did take the, the higher subscription um, earlier last year. They increased their subscription prices. And we think that that combined with the weaker content of 2018 was probably what led to those weaker, weaker numbers in Q2. But actually, the content has got much stronger, and we think we can, they can absorb that pricing. And we've, we've, we're seeing that in terms of the momentum uh, coming out of the year. So, Ronan, as you monitor and analyze uh, social media uh you know, commentary as it relates to some of these streaming companies. Are you hearing anything about some of the others out there? What are you hearing about some of the others, whether it's a, an existing streaming thing, a brand like Hulu or something new like the, you know, HBO Max is coming out. And then I think Comcast has uh, coming out with the Peacock. Are, are they registering at all in social media right now? Yeah. So, so no, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, Paul. So what we're seeing is that uh, with Disney Plus was definitely a breakthrough compared to, say, Apple TV Plus. And what we've seen is that, yes, Netflix has continued to perform well, but Disney Plus is really showing strong momentum and has gone straight in there at number two, if you like, uh, within the streaming, um, streaming universe. Whereas we see someone like Hulu and Roku are continuing, continuing to, to, to tread at a similar level, whereas Apple TV Plus came in, came in at a much lower level. So we see, certainly we see Disney or Netflix is number one, but Disney Plus is doing really well. And that continued into the holiday season. We're seeing The Mandalorian in particular has, has proven to be particular, uh, particularly popular. A lot of people say that the real game changer will be live sports and whether the cable networks will lose live sports streaming to some of these services. Do you foresee that being a significant game changer that potentially uh, creates losers and winners that results in either insolvencies or mergers? Yeah, so, so as a firm, Eagle Alpha, we look right across the alternative data spectrum. So we've talked a lot about the Twitter um, uh, social media analysis. But as a firm, we're looking at many more data sets out there. And I think they will be really pivotal in analyzing this trend because you're absolutely right. This is a very fluid market. And I think we're going to have to, you know, we're going to, have to monitor that data over time. Live sports is 
absolutely a hot topic. We're, we're seeing it uh, in terms of online conversation, and the, there's definitely the appetite for um, more live live sports via the streaming platforms. Um, and I think that it's something we're going to have to monitor very closely, and we will be monitoring very closely. Ronan, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Ronan Crossan, Head of Data Analytics uh, with Eagle Alpha, joining us on the phone from Dublin, Ireland, talking about what I think will be one of the most fascinating fields in 2020, which is the streaming. Paul, I love it when we talk about cybersecurity because it's always some iteration of why we should all be really scared yes. and we're about to deal <laughs> with something really tragic and, 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 and regretful, regretful uh, based on the excess of our data out there in the mainstream. Joining us now to talk about that, Steve Grobman. He's Chief Technology Officer at McAfee, uh, joining us on the phone from Dallas. I, I want to get your sense, Steve, so when we talk about why we should get scared with respect to all of the cybersecurity threats, what are the main reasons that we should be nervous right now in 2020? Sure, you bet. Uh, first off, Happy New Year, Lisa and Paul. And, you know, cybersecurity is really one of these areas that impacts consumers, it impacts business, it could even impact the upcoming election cycle. And maybe just to kick us off, if we look at it from a consumer standpoint, the thing that consumers really need to worry about is having their accounts and account data stolen. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is uh, over $2 billion of consumer account information was up for sale on the black market. Uh, that's eventually going to be sold to individuals that will use it for identity theft or fraudulent purposes. What's really interesting for folks to be on the lookout now is how they can be targeted, because it's not just through phishing emails. We now see things like phishing texts or even robocalls, and really having consumers understand that these are all things they need to be aware of is key. So Steve, give us a sense of where the regulatory environment is. It just seems like they're, they're, the regulations cannot, whether it's you know uh, robocalls or whatever, cannot stay ahead of the technology. What do you think is the best way, assuming that you know government regulation is not there to protect us per se, what do you suggest for your corporate clients that they do? Sure. So, so first off, there's actually been a lot of great progress on, against robocalls in 2019, both on the regulatory and technology side. On the regulatory side, the carriers have now received higher levels of empowerment to go after and block some of these robocalls. So monitor them when they detect patterns that look like it's not legitimate. They are now authorized to block them. There's also some new technology. It has kind of an interesting name. It's called Shaken and Stir. Uh, so either a Martini or James Bond reference. Got but it. A stir is for those business systems, the VoIP systems. And Shaken is for cell and landline. And what these technologies will do is it'll make it so that when you get caller ID information, it'll be authenticated such that it's going to be much harder to spoof. The challenge is, is that it's going to take some time to implement these new technologies across the board. And in the interim, consumers and businesses really need to have a very heightened state of alert anytime they get a text or a, or a phone call, because it's very likely not coming from the source that the caller ID says that it is. 
So how is McAfee uh, seeing the business spending when it comes to cybersecurity? I mean, has it been steadily uh, accelerating at an exponential speed or are they tapering it back and being more selective about how they invest? So what we've seen is businesses now recognize that they need to protect all of the technologies that they're using to run their business. In 2019, and we'll see the trend continue in 2020, there's a significant movement and embracing of cloud technologies. Uh, and with that move of business to the cloud, we see cyber threats now starting to target the cloud environment. So one of the things that McAfee has done is we've extended our enterprise portfolio to include both traditional environments and cloud. And where we see a lot of the business investment is making sure that as they move to the cloud to run their business, that they can protect those environments as well as their traditional environments. Steve, give us a sense of how much of the cyber crime or cyber, you know, the, the issues that people are dealing with, the threats are, how much of that is state sponsored versus maybe individual or criminal? Do we have a sense of kind of that breakdown these days? So, so we don't have very specific quantitative breakdowns, but we do see some interesting patterns. Uh, for example, last year, we saw a major ransomware campaign. It was called the Sodenakibi campaign. And what was interesting about this was it very specifically targeted North America and Western Europe. The way that it did that is part of the code looked at what was the local language that was installed on the computer that got infected. And if it was one of those languages from the former Soviet Union, it would basically not run. Uh, what that essentially did is even if uh, individuals or businesses in certain parts of the world got targeted or, or were exposed to this ransomware, it was essentially benign on their environments and only selectively impacted certain parts of the world. So whether that was a cyber crime organization that was focusing on areas right. that they wouldn't be prosecuted or uh, other reasons, you know, those are typically some of the reasons we see that that sort of behavior. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate your thoughts. Steve Grobman, Chief Technology Officer for McAfee, joining us on the phone from Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.